Some products carry warning labels that are helpful. But there are also some wacky warning labels. In fact, I have with me this morning the top 10 wackiest warning labels. Here they are, number 10. It appears on the packaging for a blow dryer. It says, do not use while sleeping. Okay, next time I want to blow dry my hair while I'm asleep, I'll know. Number nine is found on a commercial washing machine. It reads, do not put any person in this washer. As if we're all going to go down to the laundromat for a swim. Number eight is a line in the instructions on an iron-on decal. It warns you, do not iron while wearing shirt. Thanks for that. Number seven is a warning that appears on an infant stroller right underneath the utility bag. It's hard to read, but it says, do not put child in bag. Number six is on a coffee cup. Here's a needed warning. Caution, hot, avoid pouring on your crotch area. Glad you told me that. Number five is a fishing lure, harmful if swallowed. It's good to know swallowing some metal hooks might cause you problems. Number four appears on a hot tub. Avoid drowning. Remove safety cover from spa when in use. As if, let's get in the hot tub and put the cover back on. Number three is a warning that's written on the package of a plastic fishing worms. Not for human consumption. Number two is on a Superman suit, just to be clear. Wearing of this garment does not enable you to fly. (laughs) And the number one wackiest warning label, my favorite, is found in the instruction manual for a jet ski. It reads, warning, never use a lit match or open flame to check fuel level. Of course. I mean, some warnings should be self-evident, shouldn't they? The danger is so apparent, a warning really doesn't need to be stated. And yet not so with this morning's subject. For I must alert you to a grave danger that might otherwise escape your attention. For the next several weeks, in fact, we're going to be talking about the unseen war. There is an invisible battle raging around us. A spiritual conflict. The stakes are high. The dangers are real. And if you're not alert, you could become a casualty. For the next three Sunday mornings, we'll be in Ephesians 6, and our subject is spiritual warfare. Next week, we'll discuss our armor. The week after, our arsenal. But today, we're going to examine our adversary. Let's read our text, beginning in verse 10. Finally, my brethren... Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Paul is speaking of a war, but an unconventional war. In this battle, the theater of conflict is in the mind and the heart of people. The territory to be conquered are the souls of men and women. Our adversary is spiritual. 
And we need to be warned. For this war is real. It's intense. Even if it's unseen by the physical eye. Our enemy doesn't always appear in the sights of a sniper's rifle. The most powerful binoculars can't locate him through their lenses. Our foe can't even be seen through night vision goggles. No radar has yet to be invented to detect his movements. We fight an unseen war against an unseen enemy. As Paul says in verse 12, For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. You see, often we think our enemy is the human in front of us, the person that we can see, but not so. Our enemy isn't the bully, or the hater, or the drug pusher, or the pornographer, or the abortionist, or the atheist. Our ultimate enemy is spiritual wickedness. See, the Bible teaches us that there are spiritual entities all around us. They're called demons or evil spirits. These creatures were once God's angels, but they chose to rebel against Him and worship elsewhere. And now they hate all that's God, especially the apple of God's eye, the human beings that He created. They vent their animosity toward God by dragging down the people He loves. In John 10, Jesus told His disciples that Satan's goal is to steal and to kill and to destroy. Notice here, Paul mentions four ranks of demons. First are the principalities. These are territorial demons. They concern themselves with borders. Their goal is to push the limits of evil, to stretch out society's tolerance. They want to break down the moral and the spiritual walls that God has erected to protect us. Next are the powers. These are the demons that entice and tempt. They're fueled by the challenge. Can they subvert your will? Can they lure you in? Can they persuade you to bite the forbidden fruit? They keep inventing new hooks and bait to try and catch us. In addition, there are demons called rulers. These demons are into domination. They're the control freaks. They like to tie a person to a cord of addiction and drag them through the muck and mire. They delight in a person's embarrassment and slow destruction. And then finally, Paul refers to spiritual hosts. These are perhaps the most diabolical of the demons. These are the host cells. So that even in times of spiritual awakening and Christian revival, these demons keep evil alive and brewing and simmering on the back burner. Host demons are plotting their next move. Some new evil, another day, a more opportune time. All these demons work together for one leader. They ply the wiles of the devil. They're all employed by Satan. You see, the devil or Satan or Lucifer was once God's archangel until he became jealous and he rebelled against God's authority. Rather than worship God, he worshiped himself. And God stripped him of his exalted position. Lucifer fell. Sadly, Revelation 12 tells us that he convinced a third of the angels to join in his revolt. The unseen war we fight is against an unseen enemy. And ultimately, that foe is the devil himself. 
And realize, when people talk about Satan or the devil, they tend to make one of two mistakes. Either they underestimate him, or they overestimate him. On the one hand, the devil would love to have you and me underestimate him. He'd love for us to just brush him off as a comic strip character. A little imp in red leotards and horns and hooves and pitchfork. A cute little mischievous grin. You know, one of Satan's greatest achievements is in convincing so many people that he doesn't exist. In spite of all the evil in the world, some people insist that there's no devil. Here's a point that asks an interesting question. If the devil is voted not to be, is the verdict therefore true? Someone must be doing the work the devil is reputed to do. Some folks say the devil never lived. Some folks say the devil is gone. But what we simple folks would like to know, who's carrying the business on? As the old pastor put it, if you don't believe in the devil, try working for the Lord for a while. And I agree. Just get busy serving Jesus and it won't be long before you'll have no doubt that there's a devil. Don't underestimate the devil. He and his cronies are ruthless. Their evil is beyond all imagination. The devil and his demons, they have no conscience, no principles. Again, in John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus calls the devil a thief. And he says of him that he's out to steal and to kill and to destroy. He wants to burglarize your blessings. His goal is to trip you up and rip you off. You see, if you're a Christian, the sooner you realize this, the better. Life is not a playground, it's a battleground. The Greek word here translated wrestle in verse 12 speaks of hand-to-hand combat. We're locked in a mortal clash, a fight to the finish. We're toe-to-toe with spiritual assailants. Don't underestimate our adversary. But neither should you overestimate the devil. This is another mistake we can make. You see, Satan is not God's equal. He is infinitely inferior. The devil is a created being. Until pride entered his heart, he was the angel Lucifer, a minister in God's creation. You see, in a head-to-head contest, Satan is no match for our Jesus. Our champion can squish Satan like a bug. In fact, one day he will. The Bible says that when Jesus returns, he'll defeat him with the mere flash of his glory. You recall when Moses entered into Pharaoh's court that Aaron threw down his staff and it became a slithering serpent. You remember that story? But Egypt's magicians and sorcerers with satanic power, they were able to duplicate the miracle. They too were able to throw down their rods and turn them into rattlers. But that's when the Egyptians saw an amazing sight. For the rod of God, the serpent that came from Moses' rod, swallowed up all of the serpents of Egypt. And the conclusion was obvious to all who saw it. God was making the point, Satan might be powerful, but God is far more powerful. Never forget, Satan's leash is always measured by the will of God. The Bible portrays Satan as a pawn in God's hand, a stooge that's used for God's purposes. In 200 AD, one of the early church fathers, a man named Tertullian, he referred to Satan as God's ape. Satan is on the leash and God is the monkey grinder. We learn from the book of Job that Satan can't harm a hair on Job's head without first getting God's permission. 
Don't overestimate the devil. He's limited. And this is why it's impossible for a Christian to ever be demon-possessed. 1 John chapter 5, verse 18 makes this clear. We know that whoever is born of God, the wicked one does not touch him. I mean, the verse can literally be translated, the wicked one cannot attach himself. They realize Jesus is not into timeshares with devils. A Christian can be attacked and tempted and hassled by the devil. He can be oppressed, but never possessed. And I think we often give the devil way too much credit. I know people who like to blame the devil for problems of their own making. The devil may have played a role, but all too often our difficulties are self-inflicted. Don't blame the devil for your own disobedience. Years ago, I I was reading uh, from a misled pastor who had published a list of supposed demons that were supposed to be tormenting Christians. Here's his list. The demon of fear and loneliness. The demon of junk food and gluttony. The demon of excessive chit-chatting. The demon of sunbathing. The demon of warts. The demon of disco fever. This was a 1970s list, by the way. The demon of the fear of fatness. The demon of trying to be cool. The demon of spending sprees. The demon of food gulping. And the demon of baldness. Obviously, that demon's been working overtime on some of you guys. Of course, this list, it's absurd. It's ridiculous. And most of all, it's unbiblical. And yet folks believe it. And why? Because it's easier to blame the devil than to take responsibility for my own behavior. Hey, Satan is not omnipotent, although he would like for you and I to think so. Neither is he omniscient, though he seems to be since he's spent thousands of years studying human behavior and has become quite the expert. And neither is the devil omnipresent, though his army of demons might give us that impression. No, God is the one who is all-powerful and all-knowing and everywhere at all times, not the devil. Don't underestimate his abilities, but neither should we overestimate them. See, here's the truth. On our own, you and I are no match for the devil. But Satan is no match for Jesus. The angel Michael had the balanced approach. In Jude verse 9, he didn't back down from Satan, but neither did he consider Satan a pushover. It says this, Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. See, if the devil had taken possession of Moses' corpse, he could have turned it into an idol that the Hebrews might have worshipped. It was the angel Michael who kept Satan at bay. And he did so not by screaming insults and expletives at him, like a lot of preachers like to do. Why is it people like to shout at the devil? And yet the person who probably could have chose not to. The angel Michael, he used just a smart, simple approach. He said, the Lord rebuke you. I like that. Even Michael kept Jesus between him and the devil. Always keep Jesus between you and the devil. Spiritual warfare is not the time or the occasion for us to get the big head, to think too highly of ourselves. Try to take on the devil one-on-one by yourself, and he'll turn you into deviled ham. 
Martin Luther once said, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. There is only one person greater than the devil. But that one person is the King of glory who reigns in heaven. Jesus the Christ, our Savior, has won the permanent victory. That means the key to us winning this unseen war is our connection to Jesus. And this is why our text tells us in verse 10, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. The muscle needed to confront Satan is not our own. This strength is found only in Jesus. 1 John 4 verse 4 tells us, Greater is He who is in you than he that is in the world. The Bible declares that on the cross, Jesus defeated Satan and all of his henchmen, stripped him of his power. Colossians 2 verse 15 describes this ultimate victory, that Jesus disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Hebrews 2 verse 14 says of Jesus that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. The cross was the deciding blow in this spiritual battle, this age-old conflict. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he has declawed the lion. He has milked the serpent. He has rendered Satan and his power impotent. For many years after World War II, you read of Japanese soldiers that were found on South Pacific islands who were actually still fighting the war. They didn't know that the war was over. And this is the case with Satan today. The devil is living on death row. His fate is sealed. And Jesus is coming back to pull the switch. But the devil and his demons are resigned to go out swinging. They're going to raise hell until they're thrown there. And this is why we need to remember that Satan is a defeated foe. Yes, he's still up to his mischief. But the only authority that he has over the Christian is that which we allow him. As followers of Jesus, you need to understand that we don't ever fight for victory. We fight from victory. Our victory has already been won. We stand in what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Our objective in this unseen war is not to gain ground, but to hold the ground that Jesus has won. As we read in verse 13, and having done all to stand. We stand in His victory. When we acknowledge our weakness, when we grab tightly to God's blessings, when we dig in our heels and stand in Jesus' name, the demons are forced to flee. And this is God's promise to you, my friend. In James 4, verse 7, we're told, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I read where Montana ranchers are now interspersing llamas among their flocks of sheep. One year recently, they lost 50 lambs to hungry coyotes, and they found the best protection was a llama. Understand, a coyote is an opportunist. He's not really looking for a fight. He attacks only where he senses that there'll be no resistance. A llama, on the other hand, has no fear. He smells a coyote, and he walks straight toward him. It scares the coyote, and the varmint runs away. Well, as believers in Jesus, the Bible calls us sheep. But we also need a little llama in us, okay? If we stand against the devil in the might of the Lord, Satan is forced to flee. He'll tuck tail and run. 
Satan realizes that he's no match for the believer in Jesus who's strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And this is why the devil prefers the subtle over the frontal attack. Persecution, illness, calamity usually drive us to the Lord. We drop to our knees, we open the Word. But this is not what Satan wants. He tries to cut us off from our supply line, neglect our source. When Satan lures us into acting in our own strength, that's when he's got us. And this is why we're warned to stand against the wiles of the devil. For Satan has a million tricks and traps and schemes, and he has spent millenniums honing his skills. We need to be able to recognize our adversary to detect the devil's strategies. Victor Hugo once said, A good general must penetrate the brain of his enemy. Paul said something similar to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Throughout the Bible, the Holy Spirit exposes the wiles of the devil. And with the time I have left this morning, I want us to take a look at a few of his strategies and how we too can stand against them. First is deception. Boy, Satan likes to deceive. He is a master of disguise. Remember, he comes as a wolf in sheep's clothing. Satan appears as an angel of light. He knows how to gift wrap a package. It was Shakespeare who said, The devil has power to assume a pleasing shape. Hey, rather than come to you wearing horns and a pitchfork, more often the devil appears in a string bikini or a short skirt, or a new Armani suit. In John 8, verse 44, Jesus called the devil a liar and the father of it. Satan has no allegiance to the truth. He'll deny it, he'll twist it, he'll add to it without hesitation. Satan has no conscience, remember. He savors half-truths. He'll mix a lot of truth in with just a little bit of lie. Satan even knows the Scriptures and he'll twist them to lead you astray. It was Tozer who said, The devil is a better theologian than any of us and is a devil still. This is why it's foolish for you and I to argue with the devil. Match wits with Lucifer and you'll lose. Here's good advice. When the devil knocks, let Jesus open the door. The second while of the devil is distraction. Oh, how he loves to distract us. Satan will use an innocent object, a hobby or a habit, or even an honorable cause. And he'll get you so wrapped up in it, you'll no longer think about God. Who can forget King David on the balcony under the starry sky, when suddenly in the moonlight he caught sight of that beautiful silhouette. That one look left him hooked. The king was brought down by distraction. Many a man and woman has gotten distracted and been destroyed. Here's a, a little video clip that illustrates how this can happen. Sun is shining, Got to look for, look for love 
drop the gorgeous myself and I get to look for, look for love, look for love, we'll always look for love, shine for you, look for love, when you're around, look for love, never look, look for love. It can happen to men and women, can it? We get distracted. We take our eyes off what's important. I saw another video uh, from a high school basketball game on an inbounds play. One of the offensive players, he ran over into the corner of the court, got down on all fours, and started barking like a dog. It was really bizarre. So much so that all of the defense, they just turned, and they stared at this guy over on the side while one of the other players jumped in front of his, his defender, caught the ball, and made an easy basket. I got the video for that too. <laughs> I wish I'd thought of that when I was coaching basketball. That was great. But here's the problem distractions. Distractions. Satan is the master of them. Beware. Satan likes to create the peripheral issue. The strategic diversion. Don't get distracted from God's will for your life, for what's most important. And then the third scheme of Satan is doubt. Now, if I were to ask you, when Satan appeared to Jesus in the wilderness, what was the first temptation that he put Jesus through? Some of you would say, well, he asked him to turn the stones into bread. But not so. First, Satan tried to sow a seed of doubt. He approached Jesus saying, if you are the Son of God. He tried to get him to doubt it. Satan tried to make Jesus doubt his identity, put him on the defensive, force him to prove himself. And this is what Satan wants to do with us. Rather than have faith in God's grace, Satan wants us trying to prove our own goodness. He knows we'll fail. When we doubt God's love for us and the sufficiency of Christ, we end up doing a lot of non-important religious stuff trying to prove that we're Christians. See, doubt pressures us to perform. We end up trusting in our grunt, not God's grace. Satan will try to cast doubt on your own salvation as well as the Word of God. Rob us of His promises. God's promises to us. When Satan offered Eve the forbidden fruit, she said, God has said, you shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And that's when Satan replied, you will not surely die. Satan tried to cast doubt on God's word. And tried to deny that Eve's sin would carry any deadly consequences at all. Once actor W.C. Fields was thumbing through his Bible. He wasn't a Christian, so it seemed strange to see him so interested. Someone asked Fields, what are you doing with that Bible? He said, looking for loopholes, looking for loopholes. And Satan will tell you that he's found some loopholes and he's got some workarounds for you. You don't have to take it literally. You can bypass this or that. He wants you to doubt God's word. Don't you buy into his lies. You see, Satan deceives and he distracts and he breeds doubt. And his fourth scheme is discouragement. And here's where I've got to admit to you. There have been times when waves of discouragement have overwhelmed me. And they've come for no apparent reason. Over the years, I've learned to recognize these floods of discouragement as spiritual warfare. 
when it happens now, I rebuke the devil. And often the blues, they leave as quickly as they came. Did you hear about the yard sale at the devil's house? He was selling all his tools. All but one, that is. He kept behind this harmless-looking tool. But it was his favorite. Someone asked him, he said, why isn't that tool for sale? The devil replied, well, it works when nothing else does. For no one knows it's mine. It's called discouragement. One of the ways Satan will discourage us is through introspection. He can drown us in a sea of guilt if we get our eyes off of God's grace and onto our failures. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones who said, The moment Satan turns us in on ourselves, we're plunged into a vortex. We go round and round. We become defeated, utterly useless Christians. Oh, there is a time for self-examination, but when we do it, it should be done quickly with our eyes on Jesus. Focus on your problems and they'll fester. Our healing comes only when we get our eyes on Jesus. And then the fifth of these satanic traps is fear. You recall Peter referred to Satan as a roaring lion. But that roaring lion is not the one that you should fear. Look carefully. The older lion is the one who's lost most of his teeth. But he can growl and intimidating and look ever so menacing. And when little Bambi comes walking down the path, the roaring lion jumps out of the brush and strikes fear in her heart. Bambi gets scared and retreats, and she runs right into the jaws of the young lion. And this is exactly how Satan operates. He controls us through our fears. Years ago, there was a barbecue place right up above where we lived, and I wanted to go for lunch at the barbecue place and so Kathy dropped me off and she went on ran some errands and I told her no big deal I'd walk home in fact I knew a little shortcut I cut was cutting through the woods and as I was walking down the path I'll never forget this ferocious dog came out of nowhere this dog was 10 foot tall had dinosaur like teeth that's how I remember him my story this dog was growling and snarling and foaming at the mouth. And I had nowhere to run, no tree to climb. And I'll never forget, I prayed. That's the first thing I did, I prayed. And then for some reason, just, you know, I just decided, I just started snarling back. I started growling back at the dog. Imagine the scene, would you? The dog growling at Pastor Sandy and Pastor Sandy growling at the dog. And believe it or not, my strategy worked. The ferocious dog walked away, and I ran home. <laughs> and here's the moral of the story. Don't succumb to fear. When the devil snarls at you, you snarl back. In Christ, you're a sheep, and you're a little llama, too. Resist and watch him flee. And then the sixth while of the devil is dissension. And here's where Satan loves to create Ill will, ill feelings between husbands and wives, dads and children, brothers and sisters in Christ. For if Satan can get bitterness brewing in a person's heart, he can distract them from what matters. In fact, nothing preoccupies a person more than a root of bitterness. Oh, it is that one mor morsel that we love to savor, that bitterness. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, husbands are told to get along with their wives, and for a good reason so their prayers will not be hindered. 
See, evidently the devil can create static on the line between you and God by breeding dissension between you and someone you love. Kathy and I have had our share of arguments. We've even had some knock-down, drag-out feuds that had no real basis whatsoever. In fact, by the time we got done fighting over it, we had forgotten what we were fighting about. And I have no doubt that kind of dissension is nothing more than a trick of the devil. Another satanic trap is condemnation. This is a satanic specialty. The word devil means slanderer, accuser. Satan loves to torture us with past failures. He often torments us with the guilt of sins long since that have been forgiven. Oh, how can anyone be a Christian after they've done such a thing? Well, that's an all too familiar refrain, isn't it? Satan loves to tell you that you've exhausted your last chance with God. That he won't accept you until you clean up your act. But then you discover that it's impossible to clean up your act until you receive his acceptance. Satan orchestrates the catch-22. Here's a line that I hope you never forget. When Satan reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. Satan has no right to comment on who God will or won't forgive. 1 John 1 verse 9 assures us, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is rich in mercy. Hey, no matter how often you've yielded to the same sin, if you return to God with a repentant heart, He promises to forgive you. Conviction draws us to God. Condemnation drives us from Him. And it's God's Holy Spirit who brings conviction. It's Satan who heaps on us condemnation. As Paul said to, to the Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then the last of the wiles of Satan that I'll mention today is compromise. Satan loves to see God's people water down their convictions and dilute biblical truths. See, Satan offers a less filling faith, a Christianity light, a faith that's convenient and non-offensive and politically correct. The only problem with that faith is that it lacks the power to save. Reminds me of the hunter and the grizzly bear. The hunter had tracked down the bear, had him in his sights. Just before the hunter pulled the trigger, the bear shouted out, Wait! Let's negotiate! Well, the hunter was so surprised to hear a bear talk that he decided to go ahead and negotiate. The bear said he wanted a full stomach. The hunter said he wanted a fur coat. And when the negotiations were over, they both got what they wanted. The bear walked away licking his chops while the hunter wore his fur coat. Obviously, though, the bear got the better end of the deal. And this is what happens to us whenever we compromise or try to negotiate with sin. We end up getting the short end of the stick. Well, let me close this morning with a story. A man was on his way to a Halloween party. He was dressed up like the devil. It started to rain, and so he ducked into a church. The members were having a service. But when the church members saw Satan in the room, they all got frightened, and they ran for the doors. One lady got her coat caught on the end of the pew. And as the man in the devil costume walked closer and closer, she started to tremble. She got so afraid. This scared lady, she 
finally blurted out, she said, Satan, I've been a member of this church for 20 years, but I've, al- but I've really been on your side the whole time. Well, let me just say, when we compromise with sin, we do end up on the devil's side. That's why we need to be strong in the Lord and in His might. Hey, learning to recognize our adversary in this unseen war is one of the keys to victory. But it is not the only key. For we have also been equipped with strong armor. You see, spiritual combat requires spiritual armor. And God has provided us effective and protective battle gear. And I hope you'll come back next week and get your fitting. We fight an unseen war. But victory is possible if we know our adversary and if we strap on our armor.